Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com, that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> my hair look okay? It's my name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. I got a lot of text. Sweet! You want to just jump right into it? Cheers, welcome back. Whiskey, agave. Uh, Jim Heffelfinger yesterday on the on the podcast was like... For the most, one of the most intelligent scientists I know, sending us a email query about what is agave, and I said, "Jim Heffelfinger, really? Yeah, come on." So I called. I, I didn't call. I sent Jim Heffelfinger a Instagram message through the Blood Origins account. I made it very apparent that it was me and not you. Did he uh, call you? He did. Like. I mean, in, in a little bit of a name-dropping way, like, he called me about 30 seconds after I sent the message. So, I mean, he thinks I'm... All right, well, let's just go into the story. I've hunted... I've either hunted or been with Daryl hunting, because I haven't had a tag each time, this specific spot in Arizona. Heffelfinger country. Um, okay. I believe we're on our fourth year of hunting it in a row and I'm not, it, it was not mule deer heaven, but it was like uh, one step below just great little hunting spot. Um, the whole time we saw one legitimate monster, but we were just consistently in deer all the time. The first three years. Okay. Um, how many deer do you, did you see how many days are you hunting? Um, I would say we probably averaged five days, you know, at, the second year, um, Daryl was the only one that had a tag. He tagged out the third morning, you know, so it kind of. How many, say, and how many deer are you seeing a day? 
I would say deer sightings. I would say that we saw 25 deer a day. Now, okay. Um, first three years, totally on foot or in the truck. I mean, I'm going to admit that we we did some road time, not not public roads, but national forest roads, um, and never went a day without seeing a buck that we put glass on to see what we thought of it. Right. Like not saying we saw a shooter every day, but we saw Mm -hmm. that in the first three years Mm -hmm. this year had the side by side. And I don't take that to mean that we didn't put a lot of miles on our boots. Daryl, you know, I didn't have a tag. So we would do a lot of, I would take Daryl to a spot. He would go down through and I would meet him somewhere else. I also put some time on my boots and in five days, I put 300 miles on the side-by-side. Okay. And we didn't see a deer. You didn't see a single deer? We didn't see one deer. No, No, come on. 100% man. I'm telling you like- Not even a doe? Well, we moved to a different spot, but I'm telling you we covered- this 23,000 acre section. It's not the whole unit, obviously. It's, it's cut off by a highway. It's this little spot. I'm not going to get into much more detail because I'm going back next year. But we did not see a deer. We set on water holes. We did everything. And I'm, I'm, tell, like, I'm not Cam Haynes. You know, I got a little belly hanging over my belt. But we hunted hard. Legitimately mm. hard. I'll, I'll tell you that Daryl Carver would would walk anyone into the ground okay that's a legitimate statement call me out on it he he'll he'll do it and we didn't see a deer until we moved to another spot and even in that other spot we saw a doe and a fawn one day and then a lone doe the next day and i don't have any explanation i don't have any idea i realize they're wild animals i don't have a clue but i thought we know this guy in arizona Who's the man, right? He's the wildlife science coordinator for the state of Arizona. And literally, you know, if if you were going to make a list of five people in the country that know shit about deer, not not deer hunting, I, I, I don't even really know Jim's hunting prowess, honestly, but about the biology of deer. Right. I think Jim's in that top five, anyone's top five list in the country. And yeah, his Instagram handle is Servid Nuts. Right. So he's nuts about deer. So he called me back. Also one of the nicest guys in the world, right? Like, why would he call me 100%. Back? I mean, just 100%. Like super down-to-earth genius type person, the rare. You know, and, We should uh, send him some agave as a joke. I may. I may do that. But anyway, so he, he did not know the answer. He, he's, he's a long way. He's across the state from this area. Um, but I do think that I maybe planted a little curiosity in his mind because um, he's going to know the people that, that know that area, right? Um, anyway. That's the whole story, really. I got no I, kind of an anticlimactic story. <laughs> he, was, <laughs> he was like, he didn't have an answer for you. Um, you know, it wasn't like more the, predators, more. He went through the, he the normal things. Um, it's also the kind of country with a lot of steep. Cu- I mean, you know, you could just be really unlucky, and and the deer situation didn't change at all. We were just really, really unlucky. That's that's possible, but I'm, there's no fucking way. We we covered so much ground, but. 
anyway, I'm telling you that it, it's part of hunting too, right? I mean, especially in in mountainous type terrain that you could just not go in the right draw and miss everything. Um, but anyway, I had a phone conversation with Jim yesterday where I did probably more embarrassingly explaining away that I wasn't asking for, I wasn't asking him to try and help me hunt mule deer. I was just genuinely curious about this section of the state. Uh, if there'd been any major changes in 12 months, um, I got no answer. I, I don't know why I went into this story because there's nothing to the end of it. Jim didn't know. I didn't know. Um, and maybe Jim's going to end up talking to some people in the future that might have some answers. Um, probably the answer is just we didn't go in the right nook or cranny or something. I don't know. It's really, really, really weird. Um, but that's my Jim Heffelfinger story. Well, thanks, Jim Heffelfinger, for calling Cody. And thank you for the podcast that we'll release here shortly. In which another, the reason why I podcasted with Jim Heffelfinger was again, I blame Cody here in that it was a misinterpretation. Do you remember when we talked about red wolves? And we talked about red wolves, and then Heffelfinger called then, me called me yeah, out. Yeah, called you out. First, yeah. I, listen, I swear, I swear, I thought they were Mexican red wolves. I wasn't. <laughs> I just thought they were. Well, and, we had an hour long discussion about Mexican red wolf recovery. So that's coming. But they're not Mexican red wolves, right? They're just red Oh, wolves. shit. Did I just say Mexican yes, red wolves? Did. Yes, you did. Dr. Well, no. Dr. Mexican Kroger. wolf recovery. Mexican wolves. Mexican wolves. Wait, they're, ju- they're not Mexican wolves either. They're just red wolves. No. Stop. You're making this, like, really confusing now. There's red wolves in the east, and there's Mexican wolves... In the southeast, completely different species, subspecies. What's the two word? What's the uh, what's the dumbass uh, words for the scientific community where you're, you're a lumper or you're a splitter or a lumper? Those are dumb. Those are dumb names. Well, it's a way to keep job security in the tax in, in the sort of taxonomic taxonomic world. Yeah, but yeah. Don't you think there's some scientists out there that literally just complicate shit? Well, you will. Uh, it's very astute of you because there's a lot of science complications in the Mexican wolf recovery situation. In that Mexican, Mexican wolves, I, even, I almost said it again, Mexican wolves are being restored very, very well on the northern fringe of their distribution range. And if anybody knows anything about restoration or rehabilitation of populations, you don't want to typically do that at the fringe, the geographical distribution fringe of any species. You want to do it in the core of their of their range. And the core of their range is in Mexico. And U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and certain American scientists refuse to recognize the Mexican population of Mexican wolves. You just have to listen to the podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'm interested now. It's bloody good. And he's winning. He's winning the, um, I think there's like a conservationist award for Dallas Safari Club. Uh, It's the second year or third year that they're doing it. And uh, he's winning it this year. That's good. So I'm going to see him in Dallas. And we're going to podcast in Dallas about how trophy hunting can have no, trophy hunting in no shape or form has the ability 
to skew phenotypic plasticity in animal populations. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. For the 99.8% of us that don't have a fucking clue what phenotistic plasticity is. <laughs> phenotypic. Really, all it means is there's trophy hunting and the amount of animals that are taken through trophy hunting have no way, have no, has no ability to change a population's look the way that it looks, i.e. elephants with smaller tusks are, are occurring on the landscape because of hunting. Or rams are having smaller bases or smaller, antl- uh, smaller horn uh, structure because of trophy hunting, because of selective take. Yeah, see, I, I think good one. phenotistic plasticity is the, is the exact example of scientists making up complicated shit to just say trophy hunting doesn't. No, it's a us. phenomenal. It's a phenomenal terminology. Phenotypic. Phenotypic meaning physical. Plasticity meaning change. Change in physicality. It's brilliant. So let me ask you this: Why the hell wouldn't you? I'm just sorry say that you just change? don't understand. No, no, no. Why wouldn't you just say physical change? Because it's not tied to the genetics, and so it, there's genotypes and phenotypes, right? Right, or you need to justify that degree. <laughs> you need to justify the expense of the degree. So you say some alien language Greek shit, so the rest of us go. Look, what does that mean, Robbie? Tell us, oh wise look here, one. I've, I've had to, I've had to save up my scientific terminology for two weeks since I haven't been on this thing for two weeks or longer. But uh, we haven't had the roundup for two weeks. So yeah, speaking of that, I, I just got to tell like. I've literally, between the Thanksgiving holiday, my wife and I have this horrible, I don't know what it, I don't understand it. I do understand it. We, we, we live away from our family, right? And it's uh, possibly the only negative that I can find. I like, I, I sometimes wish it was 200 years ago and all my family lived on a farm, a, some kind of weird compound um, I, I want to see them. I like the holidays, but we live away from our family. And there is this Louisiana red fishing trip that the guy that owns our local fly shop does every year. And it's it's five days from Thanksgiving. It's actually, we go, I don't know if you remember, but we get really, really close to where you used to live in Mississippi. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're red fishing. So, and then I got some stupid no reason so you went on that red fishing trip we went to missouri to see my daughter went to texas to have a thanksgiving with avery's family went and went red fishing in louisiana and in the course of 16 days i was at our house for a day and a half Mm. Obviously, a first world problem, right? Right. Like, <laughs> this is not. This is not me asking for pity. And then I got some. I got some completely insignificant. No one needs to worry. Healthy. Random issue. African disease. Yeah, I got some recurrence. Weird lumps yeah. on my neck that are probably a result of either either uh, an Africa trip or a Louisiana trip. Which there's, you know, um possibility i got something weird down there but 
I've, I've been a really, really crappy person in the fact that the two, the fact that we haven't had a roundup in two weeks is in completely my fault because Robbie was in Africa and I was supposed to be doing it, but I kept doing other <laughs> things. I got, I got no, no legitimate excuse other than I really love throwing a fly at bull redfish. Did you catch a bunch? Not really. No, but we caught, <laughs> we, we caught some, um, it's a weird thing that uh, like like we go with the exact same guides. There's a group. There's a group of us that have gone down there for just just two years now. It's going to make it sound like some long lasting tradition, but the trip has been happening for like 22 years. Mm. Um, a local rancher up here, who was a big fly fisherman, started this trip like 20, 22 years ago, and then the fly fishing guy took it over. So it's always these exact same dates, and getting it like. I've been informed by my wife to never let us lose the spots on it. Wow. Which is not a problem with me at all. Um, but we we had the same guy. It's just fun. You go down there and the guides are, you know, the hospitality. Southern oh, hospitality great. is at a whole new level when you're literally on the Gulf Coast of Louisiana, right? You just mm-hmm. eat, eat like Kings. You know, eat like you haven't eaten in in, a, in two weeks and – the guides work their tails off and, and uh, I, I do, it's just a really fun trip. And so I don't have a legitimate excuse. I just got busy and screwed up my blood orges responsibilities for two weeks, honestly. <laughs> well, talking about African diseases, um, I think my cameraman might have like malaria or something like that right now. They're both two of the three that we took to Africa are in bad shape, man. They've got like massive like golf ball sized lymph nodes in their legs. They've got headaches. They're still feeling like shit. Lewis showed me a bite on his leg that almost looked like your um almost looked like a tick bite fever uh bite. So I was like, man, do you have tick bite fever? I don't know. As They're a, in bad shape, dude. As a expert on tick bite fever they had fever, they had headaches, massive headaches, the worst headaches they've ever had. And these are uh these are experienced African guys. These aren't like uh Oh no no no, these are UK before. guys. No, these are UK guys that have come in and no, but they've, they've been, been in Africa they've before. Been, they've been to places where bug bites can are a bigger deal. Oh, they've been to South Africa once before, but it was, you know, probably in the winter. Um so there's not going to be much bug activity in the winter. And then they've been to Cameroon. You know, Cameroon probably has some some crazy stuff running around. So, um, but yeah, they're in bad shape. And uh, we actually had a day where we all got freaking heat stroke, man. I don't know if I told you that or not, but we were. We were on a boat filming this documentary on this pretty cool place in, in Lake Kariba. Lake Kariba back in the 50s, middle of the 50s, was probably the, the what was the largest artificially made dam in the world. Okay, they dammed the Zambezi River. And they flooded a bunch of land, obviously, that created a bunch of islands. And at the top end of Kariba is where all these islands occur. And there's a beautiful natural experiment there in that you've got a gradient of islands all in the same area, so they all have the same climate, they all have the same habitat, some of which are private that are hunted, some of which are state parks that are not hunted, and then some of which are community lands, tribal lands, where there's pretty much like a free-for-all. 
no regulations. People live on the islands uh, pretty much permanently. And so there's a good gradient of wildlife and almost a gradient of a hunting ban, i.e. no hunting to hunting to see the difference in wildlife. Anyway, we were on a boat on an aluminum barge, essentially, between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. Air temperature is 44 degrees Celsius. I think that's like 114 F. And um, you can imagine the sun on an aluminum barge and the sun radiating off the water. It was like 125, probably 128. We got absolutely cooked. Like I remember coming onto an island at four o'clock that afternoon and we were sitting to get some wildlife footage. And I downed like a 500 mil thing of water and so did the cameraman. And we both were like, man, we feel full. Like we've been putting so much liquid into us. We feel full. But your thirst, like I couldn't quench my thirst. Like it was just like I couldn't. It, I did nothing I could do. Electrolytes, nothing. Nothing I could do to quench my thirst. And so the next day I was seasick and car sick essentially all day. One of the cameramen had diarrhea for 36 hours. The cameraman that is like the, the sort of the, the muscle man of the crew, the, the fittest guy in, in camp, didn't want to move all day, just was super lethargic. Yeah, it was bad, man. It was a super dangerous situation. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's, like, there's a few things in the world, heat stroke being one of them, that it just doesn't matter how tough you are. At, at, at a point in my life when I was actually relatively tough which i'm not at all anymore but and i was at 29 palms in the in the marine corps which is in the deserts of california in the in the palm springs ridiculous mm. desert you know like one of the few legitimately extreme places in the lower 48 mm -hmm. in my opinion and uh the, you know the marine corps their answer to everything when you're out there is hydrate um, and I can remember going into a tent in the middle of the night with our corpsman and contemplating taking my knife out if he told me to hydrate. I actually had a coli. I had a coli. I had the E. coli virus. Jeez. Um, yeah. Again, like I have a lot of these great stories, but I was just partying in Mexico and caught E. coli the weekend before. And <laughs> but everyone kept telling me to hydrate and I finally flipped. Like I flipped out and said, look, this is, I've had, I've had heat stroke before. This is not it. Something's wrong with me, but uh, it, it's, it doesn't matter. Like there's, there's some things, you know, there's some ailments that you can tough out mm -hmm. and, and heat stroke is not one of them. I've seen, I've seen the toughest people that I know drop and, and you're done. You're, you're going to have to take the time to recover from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Anyway, it was a, a day of rest. I remember, and, and that day specifically was also hot as Hades. Um, another 44 degree day. And I was, I lay on the concrete of the sort of dining room next to the river to see if I could get like a degree cooler at all. If the wind blew, it blew like a hot hairdryer. It was absolutely miserable. Yeah, you, but, you, that's when that's when you know it's actually really hot. Oh, is when the wind sucks, right? Like normally when it's hot, you want the wind. Oh yeah. When the wind makes it worse, that's when that's oh. when you got problems. So, 
it was one of those that you just waited for like 4, 4.30 for just a slight temperature change for you to be able to do anything. Um, but the trip was amazing, man. Like the Zambians, and we can get into it a little bit later. We got some text messages, but uh, it was a good trip. Yeah, a lot of great text messages about, again, just roll with us on the uh, on the fact that some of these text messages are slightly older than normal. It's literally because I was derelict of duties, but a lot of good text messages on the David John episode. Mm. Um, Love it, man. A vegan who decided cool, who wants to be a part of us. The cool thing, uh, a vegan who, what's his, he works for Turning Point. Yeah, we didn't quite say that, but so thank you for letting the public know that. <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I I read it on his Instagram on his Instagram profile. I think. Okay. Okay. Well, then yes. Um, yeah, he works for Turning Point. He's like the social media marketing guy for Turning Point USA. I love people like that who are kind of uh, on on the outer shell or a little bit of a conundrum, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't expect that Turning Point social media guy is a vegan. If, if you had to, yeah. get, if you had a place of bet in Vegas, you wouldn't bet that way. Um, Vegan but, and and almost against hunting, also, you know. Right, right. Um, so Dave from Wisconsin put really enjoyed the podcast with David John. Really interesting to hear what the other side thinks and to examine our own motivations for hunting and whether or not it's always the best tool for conservation. Um, Dave, Dave always kind of gives us. I don't want anyone else to take this wrong that texts this, but Dave's always kind of Dave, – Dave's obviously never met him in my life, um, but obviously a very uh, – he's a thinker. He's not, mm. he's not set in his ways um, in the sense that uh, he's got an I am right and you are wrong type of mentality. Um, I, I think stands for his convictions very well, but uh, great uh, look on that. We got another text from a person named Shay. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Shay? I'm gonna, I'm gonna potentially. What do you think? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know anything. S H A Y. Yeah. Okay. You think? Please. God forgive me if I'm wrong here. Do you think that's is that is that a uh is that a female's name or a male's name? I've only met one Shay in my life and she was female. So I'm going with female. Well, I don't if I'm wrong, please Shay. Shay, we apologize. Don't, don't be upset with us, but it's a little bit exciting cuz I 100% believe it's our first female texture if it is actually a female. <laughs> um or just Shay in the future, just present, pretend to be, continue to pretend to be female for Cody's sake. Well, or, or, yeah, do whatever you want. And if you're a, a, a male, I, you know, more power to you. I'm sorry. Shay sent us the text clear back on Halloween saying she's been listening to podcasts. He or she have been listening to a podcast since they were a thing. And this is the only one they've ever donated to, which was very cool. And then sent wow. um, in on the 6th of December, love the David John episode. Great choice of vegan to interview. I look forward to hearing you dive deeper with him, which uh, again, you know, I like, uh, let, hold on. Let's do this real quick. Um, I got another text that I want to read and then we'll get into it. I got to find it real quick. Give me a second. 
Dave from uh, Indiana also sent. David John made a comment that there's nothing dead on my plate. In the episode, hmm. he's saying that David John said that quote quotes. There's nothing dead on my plate. Um, not uh, not scientifically true, right? Uh, I think you're using the wrong descriptor there. Not directly true. Okay, so let, th- th- there are things that were alive. I don't. I don't like this. Um, no, I think what you're getting at here is that the a vegan, a very radical vegan mentality, and I don't think David is one of those, would say that I I have no, I don't I my actions as a vegan do not have any um, actions to killing animals per se. And I think vegans that understand themselves and understand what they do would recognize that, yes, indeed, growing monocultures of soybeans for soy, for tofu, is going to result in the death of, uh, a, well, number one, biodiversity. Uh, so insects, small mammals, reptiles, anything that could affect that crop, even depredation permits for deer and for pigs are going to be needed to grow the vegan-type diet that is on his plate. So indirectly, he's wrong. So Dave, Directly, he's right. Dave mentions the exact example you're talking about, um, the indirect um, death of insects and animals due to agriculture, due to plant agriculture, but also the plant died, right? Hmm. Well, that's. Do we really want to get into the to the the conversation no, about plants being sentient beings? I don't. I don't. And Dave does it. To be fair, in Dave's text, he's very polite. It's not an attacking matter. I like mm. that. I like. First of all, I think some people look at it as a wussification of it, or like I'm not willing to. Uh, it, there's very few people that will stand up for what they believe in, like I will. At the same time, I think the best way to get people to understand us is to have civil discourse about it, to to not be insulting and attacking. So, Dave, kudos for that. But Dave, brings well, Cody, up, don't you think that that's a that's an that's a, a uh, an artifact of everything that we do, the way that we speak, the way that we comment, the way that we interact? I think it's becoming more and more pervasive because. It, I, I'll I'll step out there and say because of what we do, because of how we act, the way that people see us, the way that we they look at us and watch us, and I think that we're a part of a thing. Yes, I completely agree with you. Other than maybe, I, I, I agree with you across the board. But I, I think it's I think it's a factor of the internet. Honestly, I think that there's a whole bunch of bad shit that the internet is made easily accessible, but what really matters is that the truth is easily acceptable. Accessible, excuse me, not acceptable. Sometimes very hard to accept, but accessible. And I, I think that the internet, I think the podcasts and stupid memes, and, and I, I think the truth is out there now, and, and we don't have to rely on this hierarchy to get our information that is leading more and more people every day to go 
okay, what I thought was maybe not completely correct. I should listen and learn. Um, and, you know, it, it works both ways. It, it works at times where we've had to admit we were wrong. Um, but for the specific nature of blood origins, it works better and it works often um, that people who were against hunting start to understand some of the truth around it. Right. Um, so yeah, I, but I, that's not what Dave. The what you were what you were giving kudos to Dave about was the way that he responded. Right. No, and I think that I I I I'm I'm standing by what I said. That I think that that's I think we're seeing more and more of that every day because of the internet. That people are wanting the truth, the actual truth, the 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 real facts and truth behind it anything across any realm, right? Whether it's what you should eat or should you hunt or should you vote for this person or should you vote for this party or anything. Um, I think that the true sharing of, I think Wikipedia and, and listen, a whole bunch of people are about to get pissed off at Cody right here. I think Wikipedia <laughs> may be the coolest thing ever. And sometimes oh it's wrong. Sometimes it's wrong but it changes and it grows and it's on a quest for the truth and the access to that. And it's when, when you give the masses of people all the information, all of it, right, wrong, biased, unbiased, they will end up at the right place. People will end up at the right place. Sometimes it doesn't happen fast, and sometimes you have to go through some grueling bullshit to get there. But when you give people all the information, and there's not some gatekeeper that's keeping the information from everyone, you'll end up at the best place possible. And I, I, I truly believe that, and I think that, that Blood Origins is on, on, the, on the tip of the spear of that in the hunting world, of saying, look... Mm -hmm. You know, we're not, we, we know what we know and we're going to stand up for it. But at the same time, we're on a quest to have all the information, which leads to the truth. Anytime, mm -hmm. anytime there's a hierarchy that filters any of the information, whether it's lies or the truth, you can't filter any of it because the people are the ones that will end up deciding what is the best path forward. And I think we're on the, in the hunting industry, I think we're on the tip of the spear of that. Right. Totally agree. Totally agree. I got on a diatribe. Any other text messages? Oh yeah. We got some more. Hang on a second. Well, whilst you're looking for them, I want to say David Wyatt from a vegan perspective, what I like about him and what I want to utilize him for is when a hot topic comes up in the hunting space, that has hunters riled up. I want to have a debate with him about the topic and get his feedback on the topic. Cause I think that's going to be incredibly valuable. Yeah. A hundred percent to switch off of David John, which was, by the way, we had several texts about him. Um, obviously a, a hard hitting episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. Um, good, good discussion that happens there. Um, Tim from Saskatchewan sent great to hear the other side of this was uh, on December 10th. Again, no, not that long ago. Great to hear the other side of the high fence topic in the episode with Michael Arnett. I will Man. add another side to it, I guess is what he's saying. We have a few high fence operations here in Saskatchewan. He goes on to talk about um, 
the loss of hunting access when a high fence operation is put up. Um, Tim, you know for a fact from a long history of of uh, text that I love your text messages. I don't know, like to me, this is a little bit of a uh, of a Matt Ranella style argument um, that if a high fence operation is put up on private ground, that people might have lost hunting access to it. Um, I guess in my personal experience, coming from growing up in Kansas, um, you just, if a person decided to start an outfitting business, which is exactly the same repercussions as starting a high fence operation, um, maybe one or two people lost some hunting access to it, but isn't that the private landowner's right? Like, where do we, where do we think that we have absolutely no right to have any access to private land? Yeah, I, that doesn't make any sense. Does he? Is it just spillover? Do you think maybe he's talking about spillover from those private lands? Well, I think maybe that it was a situation, or, or it could have been. I don't. I don't think. Maybe I don't have any idea. But you know where Maine is really. And I, I don't claim to know all fifty states, but in Maine, if it's not posted, it's access, right? Right. Like, even if it's private. So uh, it gets, it gets, okay. It gets a little gray there, but I'm telling you right now, if you live in a state where you can just freely walk on other people's land and hunt, that is not a right. That is a privilege. Mm -hmm. That's a privilege. Mm -hmm. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a very privileged thing. Um, I can tell you right now, I have a little bitty tiny plot of 40 acres and no one. Uh, no one's coming on it with without me causing a fuss about it, right? Like, it's 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 our family's land, um, and I think we're very open and welcoming people. But you're not going to just walk on my land and shoot something. Um, so I I don't I don't see that. I think there's a lot of discussion to be had about high fence. Um, I'm not sure that loss of access, Tim, is a uh, is a legitimate topic about that. Please don't top, stop texting me. You're one of my favorite texters, but I'm not sure. <laughs> That's a thing. Todd from South Dakota sent us a text that it says, okay, Cody, no roundup for two weeks. Is everything okay? Just a concerned listener. Dang. Um, thanks, Todd. Thanks for thanks yeah. for worrying about us. Well, before that, he well, said... Well, worrying about Cody. I didn't hear him say Cody or Robbie. Just worried about Cody. Thanks, when Todd. They were, when they were... When, when, when we only did one week without having one, his message was not very... Uh, the first week that I didn't do a roundup, he kind of attacked me for it. I think Tim had... I think, <laughs> excuse me, Todd from South Dakota had guilt about it because he like went after me for not doing it one week. And then he's like, wait, is everybody okay? Everybody's okay. I just got busy. That's all. And it didn't, didn't follow through with my responsibilities, Todd. We should really think about doing a roundup next time where we just ask for questions and we just answer freaking questions about hunting related topics. All yeah, I think, episode I, think we long. Have, I think we've built a uh, base up here of guys that would, uh, and, and potentially with Shay, 
Good Lord, Shay, if you're a guy, I'm so sorry. But either way, <laughs> um, it's uh, Todd has. Well, how about we do this? How about we do this? Let's make a call out. You know, do you have a guest lined up for the next roundup? Do we are we scheduled to do a roundup next week, or are we taking off for Christmas? No, we're doing one next week, and I do not have a guest. Well, let's do this. Let's do question and answer between Cody and Robbie. Hunting-related topics, policies, anything you want to talk, ask a question about. Even personal questions. Let's go for personal questions, too. I'm in. I'm in. Next week, uh, we'll do that as a roundup Q&A. And um, we'll actually also put it on the Insta story. Let's put it on the Insta story on Facebook and just get people to send us questions. And we can get them to text the questions into to the text line. What's the text line again, Cody, for those listening? 620-860-4804. You can send us a text. Really, send us anything you want. Send us anything you want. Send us a picture, even, and say, what do you think about this? Because there's some crazy freaking... Have you seen some of the crazy videos going around? Of the... Obviously, we've come out of bow hunting season, and videos are starting to circulate of how many deer got shot in the face with a bow and arrow? Yeah. What the hell? Okay, so let's 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 actually deal with this. Would you shoot? Let me start this. Would you shoot a deer in the face with a bow and arrow? Probably not. Okay, neither would I. But I don't know for sure. What do you mean you don't know for sure? I mean, I don't. How know desperate? I, in my brain, in my brain, how desperate do you need to shoot that no. animal? Like straight, if you in shoot the, it in the face. In, when you say in the face, no. Here's the here's the, in the eye in the head. Here's the bigger question: Is the you know places, and I know places where the vitals target on an animal? That's an American thing. What? That's an American thing, man. There's a lot of places. The, in the vitals. World. There's a lot of places in the world that preach like a front shoulder shot. That's on da- on on African game. Those frontal shots are more common than on American game. I absolutely will give you that. Bigger caliber guns typically, much much high caliber, much more high caliber tracking of the animal post shot. I think I found in my experience less need for the tracking though. Oh, with the frontal shot. With a front shoulder shot. With a front yeah, look, shoulder talking, shot. But but not with a bow. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, no. I, I I went off on a tangent. I wouldn't shoot a deer in the face with my bow. <laughs> okay. Back on target. <laughs> right, no. Yeah, no. I I, I think Really what it boils down to is I would never make a decision while at full draw as to whether or not it was going to be a Insta- good Instagram post. And I think that's what's happening. I don't think people are thinking that. Oh, I think I people are. Oh, no, no. I, this is what I think people are thinking. They're in a place to hunt. I think that they're tied in with some sort of filmmaking. And they have a... Or, or, or maybe even not. But there is a pressure, just like I talked with Todd, Bob, uh, Todd Baumgartner about when he went to Alaska. Go check out that podcast. 
there is an inherent thing in our space about failing. And if you're at a place that's supposed to have big bucks and you've paid big money and you've told all your buddies and maybe you have a film crew with you and you see a deer and the only shot available to you is a headshot, you, these guys are taking it because well, of that bloody pressure. I think we just said the exact same thing. That there, I said I would never take a shot based on whether or not it was make a good Instagram post. And you're, you're, you're saying, I mean, maybe it's a good shot whether, based on whether or not it's going to make good video for the TV show or, or whatever. I, w- I would never well, Maybe there's that. no video. I'm just saying there's, I think there's, I think even without video, without Instagram, I think today there's pressure, and maybe that's been a, a, around for a long time, of you telling a bunch of people, taking time off, taking time away from family, that there is an expectation of you to kill. Uh, and I, I, still, I, I, I still think it falls back on digital media. I, 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 don't, I think there's very few people who took that face shot with a bow. Without social never, media involved never, 15 years that ago? never posted it. That never, oh, okay, that okay, okay. never posted it. And, and in some realm or another, if you posted it, there's a potential for that to be a deciding factor on whether or not you took that shot. Mm. So you think more people do it, but they just don't post about it? No, no, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. I, I think that the people that are doing it are doing it so they can post it. Oh, gotcha. Whether it's, and, and, you know, even if they know it's wrong, even if it's for a shock factor type scenario of the carbon arrow sticking out of the eye socket, you know, which is just asinine and childish. Um, I, I think, I think that, uh, you know, it's the, it's the bulletin board mentality. It, it's, I, I still stand behind my statement of all along, this is not a social media problem. It's a people problem. But, mm. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know why you take that shot. Now, I've shot deer in the head with a rifle before um, because it was the shot that was presented and I wanted to put meat in the freezer. And I'll, I'll stand behind that as if, if, if I can make the shot, um, you know, not at 500 yards, but at 50 yards. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was trying to put meat in the freezer, you know, and absolutely knew that I could make that shot. I've done that before. Um, with an arrow, I think you run a real solid risk of seeing a deer a year later with your, with part of your arrow stuck out of its skull. Cause you didn't do any real damage to it. Mm-hmm. You didn't do enough damage to kill it. Mm-hmm. But, just like I'm not so sure that with a rifle, regardless of where you're at geographically, that a front shoulder shot isn't a better shot than this vital area thing that we have, we have just, you know, but you, you buy a deer, you buy a 3D, you buy a deer target and we've selected the vital area as the way to shoot and all right, I'll I'll say that my last mule deer that I shot in Colorado, I shot it in the front shoulder intentionally. 
immediately followed it up with another shot. And that deer was dead in a matter of less than 10 seconds from the first finger pull. With your gun. With your gun, right. Right, right. But I was genuinely concerned. The broadside, you were going through the shoulder? Probably still drastically damaged the vitals. But I made an intentional choice to shoot it in the shoulder because of the area that it was in. If it got up and over a ridge, it was going to be a real problem to find it. Um. And it didn't. It dropped exactly where I shot it, and I shot it again because I didn't know. I I don't know. I I think there's a there's a. I think that we. Um, I'm not so sure that the vitals is always the proper shot with a rifle. Hmm. I agree. And I didn't you have. Know, that. You look like the bloody like you look like the Matrix right now. Like you I come like because you've got no you've got no no light in your house and every time you come closer to the screen your face is just and and the computer screen is reflected in your in your eye in your glasses yeah that's my goal i'm Mm -hmm. I'm trying to intimidate you with my i can drop back like this and you can't even hardly see and then exactly you're gone you're gone yeah well just like that any questions like that send us a send us questions via text message um and uh, the next roundup next week, Wednesday, we will sort it out just before Christmas. What are you? What are your Christmas plans? Just drive all over the place like madmen. Damn. We're going to Kansas for a couple of days. It's not bad. That's a six, six and a half, seven hour drive. Um, we uh, here's a story for you. Here's an outdoor story for you. Hit me. The romanticism of walking out on your own land. And cutting down your Christmas tree. Oh, yeah. Tell that story. That was a good one. (laughs) Listen, I have an incredibly intelligent, incredibly funny, and beautiful wife. Who doesn't understand basic measurement. Okay? Because. (laughs) How big was the tree when you cut it? Well, here's the deal. Our ceilings. In, in the room that we put it in, we have some arch ceilings in our living room, and they're, they're at 19 feet, 6 inches at the peak. Okay? Okay. We were about a foot short when I stood it up, which is too big. The base that we have will not— Why is it too big? Because the base won't keep it upright. You put Make a, a, Can't you fashion an engineer a stronger base? I mean, to bolt this thing to the ground, it's got to be reasonable. Also, when she put just get it, a freaking cast iron base with a little bit of I weight to it. it. Up, Come on, goes, Cody. Oh, that's too tall. <laughs> and I'm like, that's exactly what I just said to you in the driveway when I had the chainsaw out, and we could have lopped some of this off. Now, I will admit that I got a little frustrated and went out and got the. Ch- I chainsawed this tree in the middle of our living room, which was not <laughs> the right way to do it. That was wrong. I shouldn't have I shouldn't have done that. And the boys are still pissed off at the amount of shop vacuum they had to do from the sawdust when I chainsawed this tree in the middle of our living room. Um but it's beautiful. We have a beautiful tree. Um and it looks great and it's probably, you know, it's probably right about the 13 foot mark now because I took five mm. foot off the bottom of it and the base holds it very well. It's very sturdy. There we go. Solid. But uh, 
Yeah, but you can quickly ruin the romanticism of chopping your own tree down on your own 40 acres in the mountains with uh, well, that the marital debates that come afterwards. Well, it started early because I saw a video of the two boys holding the top of the tree and you holding the back side of the tree, trying to go up the side of the hill and you trying not to send some religious words to the front of the tree about don't scrape the tree on the ground and take off all the limbs. Right. There's a very, it's a very complicated process that you want to actually haul the tree backwards, right? Like you want to haul yeah. the tree base first because of the way that the limbs are constructed. If you haul it tip first, then you're going to bend the limb back and screw it all. It's a very complicated process. And we had, <laughs> but we had to get it out of this draw without spinning it around. So, yeah. And then when mom decides that she should film the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was taking a lot of deep breaths in my nose to get that tree out of that valley that we cut it out of. But no, it, it, I'm. But how cool to cut your own Christmas tree off your own land. It is actually very, very, very cool. And I like it. And it's beautiful the way that she decorated it. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of really the only thing we do is we just put up a really nice, big, beautiful tree. We don't, there would be zero, lights would be exclusively for us because no one ever comes to our house except for us. Um, and uh, no, I, I love it. And I think it's really cool. Um, at some point in this voyage, we will uh, bring the proper sized tree into I, we're, 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 well, it sounds like it sounds like you have to build a bigger base between now and next Christmas. No, it sounds like we need a 13, 14 foot tree and not an 18 foot tree because our base. Will you've got a ceiling. You've got a you've got a, a, a room that can accommodate an 18 foot tree. Oh, yeah, you're going to fly your ass down here next year after Thanksgiving and try and get an 18 foot tree in the house and stood up. It's a process. I got, a drywall, if, I got a drywall screw in the wall with 550 cord tied to it coming off holding the tree in. <laughs> okay? Because we have to have the biggest uh, damn tree ever. Well, look, my man. We are back. Roundup is back. Roundup will be back next week. We're back. Um, we got, we we got, got some one cool last shit text. coming. We got oh, one Tommy. last text. Gittleson sent us the text. Okay. Dave Gittleson, for those who don't know, he's a uh, rancher in uh, north central Colorado. Um, and as far as we know, for sh- I, 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 this could be dead wrong, but he was definitely the r- rancher that had the first wolf depredation in Colorado in however many decades. And I believe is still the only one still having them, but I could be wrong about that. No, I think you're right. Um, and he sends me trail cam pictures and i every time he sends me a trail cam pic of a wolf i send him this big long apologies text and i'm like dave i know these things are causing a hassle for you but holy shit these pictures are cool please keep sending me the picture like that's that's the wolf conundrum to me is what an incredibly cool animal that is causing dave gittleson massive amounts of headache and financial and i just Dave, I, I I want you to know that that I'm on your side. I'm on the side of of landowners and private private landowners' rights, and 
Um, but man, do I think wolves are cool. Have you have you looked at the wolf management plan that they released? I have. It's out. I have. Um, what does it say? I haven't read it yet. The positive- Is it going to be paws on the ground by January 24? That I think time, so, right? Like 85? That time frame, yeah. 50 to 75 wolves. Yeah, 50 to 75, that's right. Which is a better number than what I had originally heard. I mean, we'd heard triple-digit numbers as an original option. Um, I still... Did they say where the wolves are coming from? Uh, just where they're coming from? Yeah, yeah where Mon- they're going to get the 50 to 75? Montana and Idaho. Okay. Um, and they gave the exact, uh, they gave a, they have a kind of a shaded area of the map where they're going in the Gunnison area. Um, oh, not in, not in uh, Denver? No, no, not in Denver or Boulder, unfortunately. I still think it's a complete sham to go and force more wolves into the area when wolves are naturally working their way in. I think that the ultimate scenario would be that we yeah, just find done, this man. happy medium to let them mesh their way down. Cause they're going to move out. They're They're going to move in from Montana and Wyoming. Um, I will say, obviously it's also a complete sham. The, the biggest thing you could look at, if you want to study this Colorado wolf issue is the County voting results. Cause the counties that are getting the wolves didn't vote for the wolves. Um, and to me, it's, I know someone's going to call me an extremist. It's almost a taxation without representation kind of issue. Right. Um, but Wouldn't that be pretty cool? Like, let's have a, let's put a public sentiment forward to make sure that in the management plan, wolves are only released in counties in which they were wanted. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just drop some of them right in the tech districts in Denver and see what everyone thinks about it. Is there vale, involved? Colorado. Right, exactly. Where's Estes Park? Just outside of Denver, honestly. The place that could probably, like, a place that is actually overpopulated with elk, Estes Park, has a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but no way are they going to put wolves there. It's way too close. Could you imagine? Way could too, you imagine? Way too many wealthy people's dogs would get eaten. Um, could you imagine the massacre on elk strewn across the roadside and park landscape? Okay, but let me ask you this. Say that somehow, some way, this, this could and would never happen, but say that Estes Park was clear out on the western slope. Say that that concentration of elk, like an Estes Park concentration or a Jackson Hole, Wyoming concentration, right? Like both mm-hmm. places have, because they're feeding elk for the sake mm-hmm. of wealthy people and tourists to take pictures of elk. Right, mm. that's what's happening in Jackson Hole. That's what's happening in Estes Park. Those are the damn places that need wolves to disperse mm-hmm. those elk. Yeah, to disperse the elk out. Yeah, because the elk are going to move. Yeah, and we're going to lose a bunch of them. But the yeah, rest are going to move. The rest of them are going to move. We've got to quit concentrating them for the sake of Instagram picture takers into these areas, and then those same people that are doing that. Vote to put wolves other places, right? <laughs> Let's drop a pack of wolves in Estes Park and in Jackson Hole and see, right? You're going to lose a few of your little Boston Terriers and your French Poodles too 
Um, mm-hmm. Those are the places that it would make damn sense. Just like I firmly believe it made sense to reintroduce wolves to Yellowstone. I believe that. I'm saying it out loud. I think that was a cool place to do it. Once they get outside the border, they've got to be managed, including lethal means. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, yeah, I, I, it would have been a big damn change in the vote. I bet the I bet the voting would have gone different if the if the wolves were going in Estes Park because they're well, not. if they knew that, right? Wolf yeah, wolves yeah, will be introduced here and here. They'll be like hell no. Yeah, exactly. Would it, would the the measure would have got destroyed. Yep. Yep. Well, it's good to talk to you, my man. It's been too much. It's been too long, and uh, we've had a great 2022. We can talk about that in the next roundup too. Big 2022. We've got a big 2023 coming. We've got some fucking exceptional content in yeah, the good in things. the in the frickin' shelves, dude. We've been cranking behind the scenes. Good things happening. Text us your questions. We're gonna we'll deal with them on the next roundup. Six two zero eight six zero forty eight zero four. We also were gonna talk about. Canada guns this time, but we can save that. Someone, Tim from Saskatchewan, send me your thoughts on the. Uh... Yeah, send us some Canada gun questions. We'll tackle them next week. Absolutely. Carey Price, you goalkeeper for the Montreal Canadiens, you're effing legend. Casey, listening to this. Did I? What did I say? I think you called him Gary. Casey, Casey Price, legend, Canadians goalkeeper. Here's the other. Here's the thing about the Montreal Canadiens. I knew nothing about NHL. NHL hockey. Hockey's when not. I first arrived in this country. No, no. Or, not or, many ice rinks. Not many Miss- ice rinks. Or Mississippi for that. But you really are a uh, geographic. Well, when I was in Mississippi, I had a graduate student buddy, who was uh, he was from Spokane, Washington, and his favorite team, NHL team, was the Montreal Canadiens. Really? And we went to Nashville to watch the Predators against the Canadians. There so you go. Carrie Price and I have this like bond, this like historical like. Mm. You just called him Gary. Why are you calling him Gary? I didn't. I said Casey. No, you didn't. Oh no, no. What I called him is Carrie. I called him Carrie. Oh, Carrie. Casey. Yeah. Casey, I apologize for calling you Carrie. Absolutely. Casey. Casey Price. A lot, a lot of changes happening up there. We're talking. Send us, send us your questions. Six two zero eight six zero forty eight zero four. Hundreds. Thanks, dude. Absolutely. Have a great night. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. You want to succeed, you want to fish, you want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.